Hi, and welcome to Danger Film, our special podcast with FBI Radio. I'm Jack. And I'm Andre. And today we're sitting down with the director of the new film, Upgrade, Lee Winnell, who's Australian. And we're going to be talking about dangerous filmmaking and his oeuvre, I guess. Sounds good. Let's dive into it. Lee, thank you so much for meeting with us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Congrats on the film. Thank you. I wanted to open with a bit of an icebreaker. We have a couple of stand-up friends mm-hmm. who say that the only thing that's scarier than your first stand-up gig is watching Saw. Oh, interesting. Wow. I would have thought that your first stand-up gig is way scarier than Saw. Can you speak from experience? Or I have done a handful of stand-up gigs before, literally five, and uh, it's the most terrified I've ever been. Yeah, I'd probably rather jump out of an airplane than do stand-up comedy. Really? It's that bad? Yeah, it, there's something so naked about it. You stand up in front of an audience and essentially say to them, I'm going to make you laugh. I'm such a special, unique person that you're going to laugh at things I say. I mean, that's a foolish thing to do. I have to say I do admire stand-up comedy and comedians. Um what they do and what they have to go through, just that rejection and that idea of doing a gig where everybody's just sitting there looking at you, that is true terror. Scarier than any horror film. I'm sitting and looking at you and I'm going to put you on the spot. I've heard you do a really good Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. Okay. Uh, haven't had time to warm up, but um, <laughs> <clears throat> it's possible. It's possible. It's like, um, hang on. Um, you haven't said one word this whole fucking time. Not one word. Two can play at that game. Total fucking silence. Whoa! I'm not going to say anything. That's, 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 that's off the cuff. That's great. That's perfect. You know, I've got to, you know, have my honey and lemon tea and sort of <laughs> oh, oh, red leather, yellow leather and really get into it. But there you go. This isn't part of the part of the plan, but I wanted to ask you, Jack and I were probably about 10 when we first saw your film Saw. Oh God, I'm I, so old. I, I'm always curious about whether you get... A conversation with a younger generation, all our friends admire and are passionate about the filmmaking and the horror aspect of those movies. Uh Is that something that you kind of encounter with an older generation? I mean, I I definitely really threw myself into that first Saw film like it was Long Day's Journey into Night. Like James Wan and I did not think we were making a cheap little exploitation film. We really believed in that movie. We were so passionate about it. We wanted to make a statement. We wanted to make something important. And we were 23 years old. So I guess that script and that film was the height of <laughs> of what we could uh, achieve dramatically at that time. It's been interesting to watch that film morph into a franchise and essentially become the Friday the 13th of a new generation. You know, what Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th were to me as a teenager when I would go to sleepovers and we would watch you know, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. That is what the Saw series uh, became to a whole new generation. So I do get a lot of tweets from kids who've kind of grown up with Saw. It's like they're Star Wars in a way. A lot of Scandinavian goths, I've noticed. A lot of, um, a lot of tweets from people being like, you be making so eight, yes, please, I mean, please it's... to be making this, yes. It's also huge in the BDSM community. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. very inventive BDSM saw traps. Well, I wrote, I wrote two of the sequels. I wrote Saw two and three, and then I stepped away, and they kept making saw films. And I feel like as the series went on, it got progressively more gory. And some would say <clears throat> ridiculous, but I never said that. And I remember 
the reason I stopped writing these films is because after the third film, I was thinking, I cannot think up one more scenario where someone's being flayed by a complicated uh, machine. I just, I didn't have it in me anymore. So I kind of stepped away. But I, I felt if you go back and watch that first movie, it's kind of simpler than that. It's like a lot more spare mm. than the sequels became. So instead of writing saw traps, you then wrote Upgrade and directed Upgrade, which yes. does have a lot of body horror and mutilation yes. in it. And I guess a lot of what we're talking about is censorship, but what's come up a bit is self-censorship. Has there been things in Upgrade, in Saw and Insidious that you've had to step back from? Like, what's the most intense thing you thought about doing? I never wanted to stray into an area of sexual violence. There's sort of a, a non-sexual aspect to the Saw films. You know, um, there's been a tradition in horror films of women being victimised. You know, all through the 70s, these grindhouse movies were being released where women would be raped and then maybe take revenge and mutilate their killers. I mean, I'm thinking of films like Last House on the Left and films like this. And that wasn't a tradition that James Wan or I were keen to be a part of. We we just didn't want to contribute to that strain of horror films where where women are sort of victimised in that way. So maybe that was a form of self-censorship in a way, but kind of an unconscious form, you know? I would say that now in this era of social media when so much is going on in the world and so many socio-political movements, movements are driven by hashtags, the awareness of what's going on in the world is... is, is much bigger than it's ever been. I feel like people are hyper aware right now. I've been living in the US for 12 years. I moved to LA after the first Saw film. I've been there for a while. I'm raising children there. And and you can't help but become entrenched in the political issues over there. And what's happening with guns is just disgraceful, especially being an Australian coming from a country where we have a sensible attitude about guns and we actually did something about it. You feel kind of helpless watching everything that's going on there. And so I've kind of made a decision in the film I'm writing right now and I think going forward to not use guns. You know, A gun has always been a really easy go-to instrument in movies. I mean, there's that famous Goddard quote where he said, all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. And, you know, there's just a long tradition of guns in movies from Westerns to gangster movies to from all countries all over the world. And I just don't want to contribute to that anymore. You know, I, I I don't think you can hold up a picket sign with one hand and write a movie where a gun looks cool and is used to take out the bad guys with the other hand. I think that's the height of hypocrisy. And so I am trying to write a movie now where a, a woman is in jeopardy, but she's not using a gun to protect herself. Kind of feels like you're sort of the master of finding weapons that aren't guns to use against people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't feel like I really have used a lot of guns in, in films. It feels icky, for lack of a better word, right now to write about guns and fetishize them in movies, especially with what's happening in the US. I just think it's, 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 it's creepy. I will say the saw trap that scares my housemate and best friend Ellie Bailey is the saw trap with the gun shot, like the shotgun from above with the triple. Oh, wire. in the first one, yeah, that she was a good one. She can't watch it. She can't watch it. Like for the whole time that um, <laughs> he's going down the stairs towards it, she has to like avert her eyes. I noticed that scene having a really particular effect on audiences, which we never thought at the time. We, we rushed and shot that film. We actually snuck into the warehouse where we shot the Saw movies. So we had no idea that people would react to it in such a harsh way. 
do you want to talk about Upgrade or are we chill just talking about <laughs> yeah, horror? Because talk, um, we can talk yeah, about. I can talk about Upgrade. Upgrade is the film that's screening at the Sydney Film Festival. Feels like a foray into a more sci-fi genre Mm -hmm. or even maybe a bit more of a horror movie that's more concerned with technology and how Mm -hmm. that can Mm -hmm. mutilate people do you mind just talking about where your head was when you thought that this was something that could be turned into a potential horror movie i think i wanted to make something that was really visceral and grimy and violent i wanted to make something that reminded me of the sci-fi movies i grew up with in the 80s you know before the advent of cgi there was this really special period in sci-fi that was driven by practical effects. You know, once once you could use a computer to conjure up a spaceship, well, then all bets were off. Does that mean that all the mutilation in Saw is all real? And <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly, totally real. Before CGI came along, films had to be really creative and judicious about how they used sci-fi. And so you had all these Cronenberg movies like Scanners and Videodrome, John Carpenter films like The Thing and Prince of Darkness. Um, you had uh, early James Cameron films like the first Terminator. And if you go back and watch them and really study them, they are pretty lean and mean. They feel a lot bigger than they actually are because the ideas in them are big, but the construction of them is like it's just made with a bit of love and an oily rag. It's just like, and I, I loved that. I, I wanted to make something in that spirit, you know. As someone who makes films that are extreme or potentially have R ratings, are there still things apart from guns that you just really can't go into? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think there's things that producers would disagree with if you presented them with it, but I wouldn't be at risk of writing that movie. I, I essentially want to make entertaining films. I, I don't want to make films that people have to endure. You know, there are certain filmmakers who who want to create these endurance tests if you think about something like the human centipede or martyrs or something like that some of these really extreme pieces some of the asian uh, cinema films like itchy the killer or or, uh, audition they they are movies that are kind of beloved in the horror community for their endurance test qualities have you seen this movie can you deal with it i saw a film recently called raw a French movie that I found really hard to sit through. There's something about cannibalism that just got me. I'm just not interested in that in and of itself. I would never want to make a film where a child was harmed. Not just because I have children of my own, but I don't feel that the depiction of that contributes to my storytelling style. I know there's been a, a Lars von Trier film that came out recently that's been getting a lot of criticism for child murder and all this stuff and i'm not a fan of censorship in any way shape or form but i do practice self-censorship as you said before creative self-censorship and and that's never something that i would be compelled to put on screen something like that i read an article recently where you said horror people are happy people and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you meant well, it's just what I've found to be true. The people that I know in the horror community in Los Angeles and around the world, they all seem to be these really well-adjusted, affable people. And then everyone you meet in the comedy world is really morose and depressed. There's some inverse equation happening there. I don't know what it is. I think that people who dream up horrific scenarios and are able to expel them, kind of vomit them out onto paper or, or on screen, get it out of their system. That's my half-assed theory on it all is that people who get this stuff out of their system because it's in all of us are more well adjusted i have two more questions and then i think we'll wrap it up 
all my friends that are seeing Upgrade, that have watched your films over the years, they're all pretty extreme queer people and they're all, you know, expressive and creative and just completely non-mainstream people. They're basically just all alternative folks. Is that a culture or a subculture that you feel attached to? Or I guess living in LA, you might be around those people all the time, but I'm just curious what your, how you feel in that way. I mean, I love it. You, you never get to choose your audience. That's the thing about filmmaking. I read this quote once and I forget whose quote it was, but they said, you know, you don't finish a movie, you abandon it. You, you work on it and suddenly you release it. It's like opening a, a cage and letting the dove fly off and into the sky and being like, hope the rest of your life is good. It's, it's not yours anymore. And oftentimes the audience tells you something different about your movie that maybe even you didn't know, something you never intended, which is actually one of the greatest things about making films or any art is watching the world reflect your own art back at you through their own eyes. Um, and they can personalize it, you know, um, somebody who was going through a terminal illness might watch Saw and get something totally unique to them out of it. If I, if somebody tells me that films I've created are really big uh, with a certain community, the queer community or whatever community, I love that because it's all a bonus prize. It, it, it wasn't done by design, but that's how I think all art should be created. It's, it's made in an echo chamber. It's just you. It's a lonely profession. You sit in a room, you use yourself as a barometer. If you're writing a horror film, you, you ask yourself, is this scary to me? If you're writing a comedy, you say, is this, do I find this funny? And you make a bet. You have this gamble that someone else in the world will also find it scary or funny or moving. It's so nerve-wracking when you release it because you're like, oh, God, please, someone else other than me respond to this. And so I love it. I <laughs> absolutely love people making it their own. And I would never tell someone they're wrong. If somebody came to me and said, well, I think your film that you made is really about this. In a million years, I would never say, mm, no, that <laughs> wasn't. You know what I would say? I would be like, great, awesome, great, love it. I have one last question. I'm so sorry. Is that okay? As part of this podcast, we've selected what we consider to be dangerous filmmakers or radical filmmakers for all different reasons. What constitutes a radical filmmaker for you, do you think? I think a radical filmmaker is someone who confronts human truths. There's, there's movies that are made uh, as comfort food. You know, they're, they're there to soothe and tell you that everything's okay. And Hollywood in particular is great at pumping out these movies and in their mind. That's what people want. I think a radical filmmaker is someone who risks failure big time. And actually, even more important, risks embarrassment. Because when you really step out on the ledge, you risk embarrassment. And it's, it's, it's hard. Because public embarrassment is one of the worst things you can feel, you know? I think of a filmmaker like... Anna Lilliamanpour, who did The Girl Walks, Walks Home Alone at Night and The Bad Batch. Like, The Bad Batch is such a crazy film that I really feel like she risked humiliation because she was just going for it. And to me, that's a radical filmmaker, you know? I love that answer. From stand-up to public humiliation. Yeah, any art form where you stand up, turn on the megaphone and go, boom, boom, boom. Hello, I'd like you to listen to what I have to say, whether it's stand-up or making a sculpture or doing a radio show, or making a film, or writing a book. It's all kind of brave in its own way, because 
the the chances are everybody's going to turn around and say, shut up. We are here with Lee Winnell. <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with us. <laughs> Gee, thank you for having me. Appreciate <laughs> it. Cool. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.